As human beings living in a fast-paced world, we spend a lot of our time operating on autopilot, often missing the signals our body is sending us to let us know something's wrong, and failing to notice the patterns of survival reactions to which we default when we encounter challenges and adversity. Sometimes autopilot can be a source of comfort when we are in a place of trauma. Problem is, living in a space of autopilot means that we tend to automatically react in the face of challenge, which in turn leads to conflict with others, higher levels of stress, and repeating unhealthy patterns without realizing it. So how do we shift from living and working on autopilot towards a more mindful and intentional way of operating? This question is what my guests Kay Adams and Melissa Palmer explored with me on this episode of Service Without Sacrifice. We looked at this question within the context of part three of my book, Tell Me My Story, Challenging the Narrative of Service Before Self, which talks about seeing, also known as mindful awareness, and the ability to notice what's happening as it happens. Kay is the author of the award-winning book, Bedside Witness, Stories of Hope, Healing, and Humanity. She's worked extensively in the field of geriatrics, hospice, palliative care, and mental health, and has served in a variety of capacities supporting those impacted by dementia since 2001. Kay founded her company, Compassion Works, to address the huge gaps that exist around educating and supporting family and professional dementia care partners. Melissa is the director of the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus, specifically their Master of Science in Palliative Care and Interprofessional Palliative Care Certificate Program, and works as a palliative care social worker on the University of Colorado Health Inpatient Palliative Care team. To give you some additional context for our conversation, here's the opening section of part three of Tell Me My Story, which talks about seeing. Seeing. There are moments in life that disrupt or altogether destroy our usual autopilot state, meaning we're not particularly mindful or aware of what's happening within or around us, and offer a sudden opportunity to see the space that exists between what happens to us and our default survival reaction. Seeing is our newfound ability to observe the pattern, thought, emotion, sensation, reaction, that we move through every time we encounter a stressful or traumatic event or some other form of adversity. The repetition of a particular pattern of behaviors coupled with our lack of awareness creates neural pathways in our brain, like tire tracks in the snow, that continue to deepen and eventually become our default reactions anytime we're faced with a stressor that originally set the pattern in motion. This part of the story healing cycle isn't an action step. Seeing is a state of being that is cultivated over time through intentional mindfulness practices or through life experiences that help us realize that our default thoughts, actions, or beliefs have kept us stuck in our pain or adversity. Such moments remove our lens of projection and create space where we can see our stories with more objectivity. Cultivating the mindful awareness of seeing doesn't get rid of the thought, emotion, sensation, reaction pattern. That stays the same. But we can begin to understand that the stories we've created for particular situations are first experiences thoughts, emotions, and sensations in our bodies, quickly followed by one or more sympathetic nervous system reactions, fight, flight, freeze, fix, or fake. 
Our sympathetic nervous system was only meant to be activated for short periods of time to protect us when we're in genuine danger by sending hormones like cortisol, adrenaline, and epinephrine through the body. But since our brain doesn't always understand the difference between real and perceived threats, our sympathetic nervous system is frequently activated when we're on autopilot, not really seeing what's happening around us. This makes us more reactive in stressful or traumatic situations. And over time, this can contribute to chronic health conditions and disease. The habit of seeing is not a one-and-done, aha-moment-style solution. Mindful awareness is an intentional act that must be repeated many times before new neural pathways can be formed. But once they are, when we encounter a similar situation in the future, it becomes easier to notice each thought, emotion, sensation, and reaction, the resulting story, and to make the choice to pause, breathe, and reset our nervous system so we no longer operate from a place of reaction. In this calmer space between what happened to us and our usual automatic reaction, we can instead choose a different response that will better serve us in that situation. Kay, Melissa, and I all bring extensive experience, integrity, and authenticity to our work. And all three of us are passionate about alleviating suffering in the world. And though our fields are different, Our desire to shed light on the impact of this type of work on the people doing the work is one of the areas where our work overlaps. In the conversation you're about to hear, we explore how we ended up focusing on helping the helpers as we talk about noticing disruptions to our autopilot responses, hitting the burnout wall more than once, the necessity of self-compassion as we try to break old patterns, the weight of systemic expectations and changes in organizational vision, and the moral distress that arises when our values don't match what's happening around us. We also talk about how organizations can begin to focus on the humans doing the work and start to break systemic patterns to better support staff, health, and well-being. I'm Dimple Dabalia, and this is part three of a story about service without sacrifice. So my guests today are Melissa Palmer and Kay Adams. Kay is the author of Bedside Witness, Stories of Hope, Healing, and Humanity. And Melissa and I actually went to law school together and then both have ended up working (laughs) in service of vulnerable populations. So Melissa and Kay, thank you both so much for being here. Today we are talking about part three of my book, Tell Me My Story, Challenging the Narrative of Service Before Self. And this part of the book actually focuses on the concept of seeing And so seeing as kind of discussed in this part is really this idea of mindful awareness. So the ability to notice what's happening as it happens. And the point in the story healing cycle that I talk about when our typical autopilot reactions are kind of disrupted and we finally start to notice those survival reactions that we have. And we talked about these last week, fight, flight, freeze, fix and fake. And because many of us operate on autopilot so much of the time, we can go for years without seeing these patterns in our behavior or the way each element within the pattern connects to others. And so we might notice things like, I feel angry or my shoulders feel really tight, but we might not understand that that pain in the body is related to series of thoughts and emotions that came first, which ultimately lead us to how we react. So I wanted to kind of set that context before we jump in. And 
just start with kind of a basic question, which is what came up for each of you as you kind of move through this section of the book? First of all, thank you for inviting us both because I'm sure, and I'm not going to speak for Kay, she'll, she can speak for herself, but I think as palliative care social workers, as therapists, as people who have worked in the healing profession for many, many years, and in geriatrics, right, we see this pattern of suffering. And so the suffering and its cause, it seems like, for people not seeing and finding ways to have that insight about what's happening and how it's translating to their body, their pain, their existential distress. It's really wonderful that we're having this conversation. Just recently, I sent Dimple a text and it had a full page in the Wall Street Journal the other day. And it said moral injury and had like a little tagline. And I was just flipping through and it blew me away that the Wall Street Journal would pay attention. Granted, it was based on Veterans Day, but it was just really cool to see that that's a very mainstream news media. So yeah, thanks for having us here. Yeah, I know. Of course. Okay. Well, I am really thrilled to be here too. Thank you so much. And I, I'm looking forward to this conversation because there are a lot of similarities. I didn't really know that much about humanitarian work until I read your manuscript. And then I was blown away and so in awe of what people like yourself do for a career. And now when I'm watching all the atrocities of war and everything on the TV and reading about it, I just keep thinking about the workers too that are out there in the middle of this in a way that I never thought of before. So you just really brought my awareness to a whole new level with your book. So that's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. It's funny that you said that. And I'm glad you said that because I was just thinking about that this morning too, that I can't help but think about the people doing the work anymore when I see all these things. I mean, my heart is breaking, honestly, for all the kind of civilians, individuals that are caught in these terrible situations. But I also know that most of the world is focusing their attention on taking care of them to the extent that they can. And it's interesting that we rarely think about the people that are actually on the ground or on the front lines. As Melissa said, the three of us, the work that we're doing, it overlaps in so many ways. I like that we're bringing attention to the people that are actually out there doing the work as well. I'm curious for each of you, in your years of kind of serving other humans in different capacities. Autopilot is often a coping strategy for doing this kind of work. Uh -huh. And so at what point did you start to notice disruptions to your autopilot experiences and start to notice some of these things? Like in this section of the book, we talk about moral injury, we talk about vicarious trauma, burnout, like so many different things that come up in, in compassion fatigue that come up in these lines of work. What kind of disrupting events did each of you have to start noticing if those things were showing up for you? When I started thinking about that, reading your book, I was like, there were so many times. I guess I'm not a very fast learner. I was <laughs> in so many jobs that I hit the wall and got burned out. Then I left and went to another job that was impossibly difficult and hit the wall there over and over again. But one of the things I was thinking about, because I worked for 10 years in youth corrections in Minneapolis and then here in the uh, Denver area, and they were pretty tough kids. Everything short of murder, really, these guys were doing. 
And I worked in a day treatment program for four years with them as a counselor. Most of them had like ankle bracelets on because they were just one breath away from getting sent out of home placement. And then I worked in the out of home placement as a therapist, social worker in Minnesota and then here in Denver. And it was a really caustic environment. I had the odds stacked against me from the beginning being white, you know, middle class female <laughs> with mostly kids of color in a state that's predominantly white, right? So all the institutional racism and those kinds of things. But I got so burned out. I was burned out when I moved from Minnesota to Colorado, swearing I'd never do it again. And then I did it again. <laughs> like a good social worker. Yeah, I just had a different <laughs> title that sounded fancier. <laughs> but it was the same kind of chaos. And by Friday night, I was so burnt out. I am really extroverted. I didn't want to go see friends. I didn't want to go anywhere. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I just wanted to have some cocktails and zone out to TV or something like that. And I became so jaded about youth in particular, families for sure, and the world in general. And then on Sunday afternoon, evening, I'd start feeling sick to my stomach at the thought of going back to work on Monday. And it took a kid literally threatening me in a really graphic fashion to kill me for me to finally get it, call that the cosmic two by four, and say, oh my God, they're not paying me enough for this. I am getting out of this craziness. It took that much. When I knew I was ineffective, burned out, for me to leave, I call it the golden handcuffs jobs that had great benefits and pay, and you stay because of that. And then finally, I realized I can't do this anymore. It's going to kill me or I'm going to be killed, one of the two. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I know, and so much of what you're saying is making me hear my own story in that. Uh -huh. This idea that we keep coming back to do the same thing over and over. <laughs> but I think this is a really common experience for many humanitarians, that we're doing this work. And when I say humanitarians, I mean, I'm thinking about this very broadly for all of us who are out there trying to alleviate pain and suffering in the world. And we're really hard on ourselves when we keep going through those experiences. But the reality is that those neural pathways have been etched into our brains for decades. And so trying to change that pattern isn't easy. And so it's not surprising that we keep coming back. But the other piece of what you said that really resonated, which I think is a common, you know, one of those, huh, something's not right, is when we start getting jaded and cynical about the people that we are actually wanting to serve and protect, right? Exactly. That's actually really interesting. What about you, Melissa? I worked in the hospital during COVID. So that was a whole nother level of vicarious trauma and moral injury. And I feel like over the years, often the thing that pushed me over the edge one way or the other for leaving a job, or usually it was a systems issue, right? Because I can do my piece and do it well in my area. But when I have external folks we have to do more. Oh, you're an overachiever? Good. We'll give you 60 more patients, right? Or we'll give you a promotion so then you can be in charge of making sure everyone else is doing what they're supposed to do, right? All these types of things that can cause just not enough time to do what you need to do. And also you talk about this in this chapter too, right? The vision of the organization that you're working for shifts and what you do isn't valued. Mm. And so we're working hard. And if somebody's not feeling that what we're doing is valuable, it's really hard to keep going in that situation. So that's just a general, I think, feedback. But COVID, 
it was wild. It was a wild ride. And I was working at home for one corporation and the vision changed. So I went and started working at UC Health in the hospital. And the thing that was distressing, I think, was our team was very supportive of the palliative care team of one another. And we did a lot of processing, debriefing. But we were also, I mean, I think a lot of us in healthcare had the experience where we're trying to keep people safe. We're wearing masks, we're wearing PPE, we're being thoughtful and conscious and aware. And then we have people coming in and screaming and yelling at us because we won't let them in to see their loved one who's Mm. dying of COVID, right? Mm -hmm. Or that screaming and yelling that we have to wear masks. I was like, are you kidding me? So I think that moral distress is when our values don't match what's happening. And so those are the times where I feel like that pushes me over the edge. Yeah. The work itself is tough. COVID was such an extraordinary circumstance. And to be caught in the middle, especially doing palliative care, like I think end of life is hard regardless. And when it's in that kind of situation where the person themselves can't be with loved ones and the loved ones, and maybe the person didn't know if they weren't conscious or anything like that, but the family members, definitely, like that's a big piece of healing and closure is to be able to go through that. And so I can't imagine being in that situation where you're kind of stuck in the middle. And also, by the way, going through COVID, all the fear, all the anxiety of COVID itself. And then on top of that, to have people coming at you is a tough thing. And I remember when I was in the government and with the changing administrations Mm -hmm. and the changes in the refugee program, asylum program, and same thing that when you're the face of the work, you often do get caught in the middle. And that's a really good place, but often the place where we start to notice those disruptions start happening. So I'm curious, as each of you noticed these things happening and then kept going back to repeat, what, if anything, was the point that finally, I know, Kay, you talked about like the threat that you received that kind of helped you break that, but what shifted in terms of moving forward, like how you were going to do things differently and have you been doing things differently? Yeah, so I quit my job in youth corrections without another job after this kid threatened to hunt me down and chop me up in little pieces. <laughs> that was a pretty big wake-up call right there. I've never really quit a job like that without another job unless I was moving across the country. And I was going to a series of interviews and what I decided was, I don't care what the job is, no more teenagers, period. <laughs> None whatsoever. I don't care if they aren't delinquent. I don't care. So I would be interviewing for jobs, looking for more like therapy jobs or counseling jobs with adults. Often those were panel interviews and somebody on the panel worked with teenagers, (laughs) saw my resume and would try to lure me. And I was just like, no, 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 I'm not going there. So I had to set a really hard boundary for myself that I won't, no matter how enticing that job might sound, I'm not going there. And I felt like the caustic environment that I worked in, because it was a, you know, all felony level youth with the big fences and all the wire at the top, and you had to get buzzed through the gates and everything was locked, that that gets into your pores. It gets Mm. into you. As much as you try to be mindful, as much as you try to, I call it detoxing on the weekend or whatever from all of that stuff, it took, I think, six months. 
for me to show up as what I would say was more my authentic self, mm-hmm. of how I used to be before I was so jaded and burned out. And it was almost exactly six months from when I left that job to when I interviewed in hospice. Mm. And I think it took that long for me to show up as me. And even though I had zero experience in that industry and I had no idea why I was even applying truthfully, it was kind of a cosmic two by four on a different way. (laughs) And then I fell in love with the work and I did that for eight and a half years. And people would say, you're so happy about this job. And (laughs) I would think it's so depressing and all this stuff. And I'm like, no, what was depressing was working with 14-year-olds. It felt like there was no hope for their future. They couldn't write a sentence. They had zero social skills. They had no support traumatic backgrounds times a million. And it was going to take a miracle for any of them to kind of make it through. But with hospice, people welcomed me. They didn't try to punch me. (laughs) They tried to hug me and they thanked me for my work. And it was this refreshing thing for my soul. I collected thank you cards. I never got a single thank you card in corrections in 10 years. They wrote them all the time. They were so grateful. And that was like a healing balm for me. Yeah. And even though it was stressful work and taxing work, emotionally and particularly, it was a different kind of a balance that made it easier for me to regulate. Not Mm. that I was perfect at that either. Yeah. (laughs) But that's the thing, right? There's no perfection in this. And we were talking last week about in making these shifts, like we have to have self-compassion because for every one step we'll take forward, we're going to take two steps back. We're going to backslide. We're going to find ourselves back in the same pattern again. And so we have to be able to be kind to ourselves and to remind ourselves like, okay, this is a process. It takes time. And we know that this process of noticing or seeing is not a one and done. It's something we have to repeat over and over and over again in order to start creating new neural pathways, in order to start noticing things more regularly. Could I piggyback one more second on that? The other thing in hospice is Sometimes I could run into a wall, brick wall, by noon on a Tuesday. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and I worked till five o'clock on a Friday. And even though I had a high degree of self-awareness and all of that stuff, sometimes the grief, because my dad was dying my first six months of hospice or whatever, that you get triggered into these things and you can't see them coming. And I would joke that my nice pills have already worn off for the week and it's only noon on Tuesday. And that's a problem because in jobs like hospice or palliative care or humanitarian jobs, you are expected to be nice 24-7. And, you know, the stereotype in hospice and palliative care is we're angels. We have wings underneath our coats, right? We're this somehow select group of people, which we aren't. But you aren't allowed to be crabby. You're not allowed to have a bad day outwardly to your clients. And that's not a realistic expectation any human can do. So you add that in (laughs) to the intensity of the job, and it's a jackpot. Yeah, I mean, and that's the source of a lot of our pain, right, is this idea that we're expected to be superhuman when the reality is we're human too. And I think it's interesting that we've gone all these decades with Nobody really stopping to recognize the impact of these kinds of human-centered jobs on our own mental health, right? Or we've all kind of suffered in silence and shame rather than openly talking about it. And I'm glad more people are talking about it now. And Melissa, there was something that you said that I want to come back to, which I think ties in with all of this, which is kind of the systemic nature, the systemic issues that weigh on us. And, you know, I'm curious... 
I know that now you're in different leadership roles within your organizations, within the UC system. What are some things that you're thinking about in terms of how do we focus on the human in the humanitarian? And what are some things we can be doing on this systemic level to start shifting this or to help people see what their patterns are when they're doing this work and then ultimately shift them? In the morning in our team, for the clinical team, we all check it on the stress continuum. And so that's the red, orange, yellow, green. And we check in on this continuum because we believe, and I think it's the truth in any field, that we cannot separate who we are as human beings and everything that's going on outside to what's going on in what we see. And inevitably, in the kind of work we do, maybe we'll go for days or weeks without any emotional impact. But then there's a patient who reminds you your dad or a patient who reminds you your sister, people that we've lost or people you have conflict with. You have to be constantly aware in this field and have the insight to figure that piece out. And really, we encourage individuals to look at like your own mental health piece. And so what we do in the master's program is we incorporate insight-based learning. Mm. So how have you experienced powerlessness? How have you experienced shame? How do you show up and what things have your grief, your loss? Because if we're not shining a light on that and being open about it and we keep stuffing it, if it doesn't come out one way, it's going to come out another. Mm Karma is going to kick you on your rear end. (laughs) (laughs) The more you try to stuff it, it's going to come out some other way, like illness or some other kind of injury or relationship issues. So I think that that's what in our program we try to really set an example and be a model, particularly in healthcare, where it's very hierarchical and very not that way, right? Oh, you're sick. You have COVID. Oh, you can have three minutes off. Go put your head on your desk and put your mask on and go see these 25 patients. So that's the culture. It's the culture in healthcare where keep on, keep on. And I'm sure it's the same. We've talked about that temple. It's the same or where you've worked and same experience Kay's had. Like we just, it's gaslighting. We incorporate this. The other piece of it is making sure that we're aware of the messages we're getting and encouraging leadership to be aware of the messages they're giving. Yeah, no, I really love that. This idea of building into curriculum the self-reflection piece, right? Because this was similar to when I created this human-centered leadership program. It was the same idea that we can't change systems. Like systems are built by people. And so we can't change systems until people change. And we can't change until we know like our own patterns, our own reactions, things like that. I think this is a really great thing for a lot of organizations to be thinking about, not just with leadership, but with staff in general, like through training programs, things like that. When you're onboarding, like getting people to understand that in this line of work where we are working with vulnerable populations, where we're working with grief or our work touches on with grief and other forms of trauma that inevitably something within us is going to get activated. And I really believe that most of us who choose these lines of work do so because we've had some kind of experience early on in our lives that have pointed us in this direction of wanting to give back in this way. It's very unlikely that you're going to go through this entire career not having 
any reactions. And if you do, then maybe that's a concern too. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's an issue in itself. Yeah. Well, you know, and Dimple, I just wanted to say too, the other thing I was thinking about is that during COVID, I went and started doing some EMDR because that's the other thing. There's a stigma in mental health and I was not well. I was not well. Things were falling apart at home and figured out that that was part of the issue and made changes there. But we don't ask for help enough for our own self. So I went and did EMDR and realized how it's all connected. So if we have stuff that's not going well in our personal life, if we have stuff that's not going well in professional life, it permeates everywhere. And so one of the things that I think is really important too in systems as a leader is to make sure that the culture of the team is healthy. I don't care how great you do your work. I'm not going to tolerate manipulation, backstabbing, passive aggressiveness. I really want people to show up. Oh, you're talking on your other podcast about radical responsibility. <laughs> and what's the other one? The C, it's courageous communication. Mm -hmm. And to show up as a leader, I think that's the piece we can do is we are responsible for the energy we put in the world, particularly for a leader. If you want a certain culture, you've got to create it and be a part of it and hold people accountable on that leadership level. For formal leadership, for sure. But I think we have also everyday leaders, people who don't necessarily have a leadership title. But to your point about how we show up, we can still show up and influence and lead by example. And so there's real value in helping people look within. And I think there's a lot of fear around that, though. Nobody wants to do the work. Like, it's not fun. It's hard. <laughs> <laughs> So, Kay, I'm curious, like, on the systemic side for you, what are some things that you think about and would want to see in a different way or to change to make things better for those of us who are out there doing the work? When I left corrections, I have to say, I had reoccurring nightmares for years and years when I was in hospice that I had to go back and work in youth corrections. I mean, that's pretty extreme, right? Like, oh, please don't make me go back. Because of that culture just in general, is dog eat dog, throw you into the wolves, see if you come out alive. I mean, the staff I worked with, the direct line staff, they didn't care how many letters I had behind my name or my education, nothing. The only way you got respect of them was if a kid was suicidal or something was happening and your skills came into play and you proved yourself. That was about it, right? So it was baptism by fire kind of thing. That's why, again, when I went to hospice as a culture, at least at the time I worked in this particular hospice, my dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer six weeks into my job. I had never worked with people that were dying. Oh, my God, it was such an inside-out experience. When someone would ask me at work in the hallway, how are you doing? And I started crying. They wouldn't tell me to buck up. They would find a room and come sit with me. They would share my pain. They would support me because I was surrounded by social workers and chaplains and doctors and nurses. And that really helped. It was this healing culture that if I had been in corrections, when my dad got sick, those kids, they would have taken advantage of that big spot, my vulnerability spot by saying, I don't care about your old man. I just want such and such, right? They would have used that to manipulate me more, to try to hurt me more, provoke me more. And you had to be cool, right? In that kind of context. Because the kids were not. They were very angry and unpredictable. So I think the culture of hospice really helped me to grow and heal. But then 
Melissa and I worked for the same healthcare organization for some years. And my first few years, I was a mental health therapist in that organization. So I wasn't part of a team anymore. I didn't have that support of a team. And I was surrounded by all these caring professionals, all of them with their doors shut, seeing patient after patient after patient after patient all day long. And I just started tanking (laughs) as a therapist mentally myself. Within six months of that job, I was trying to find another job. And it took me two and a half years to find another job within that organization because it was killing me. The isolation was killing me. The intensity of the patients was killing me. I had no control over how many people I was being assigned or how acute they were or any of that. If you said, hey, I'm raising the white flag, except for my direct manager who was very thoughtful, but she couldn't control the system. So she could say, way to have self-awareness, Kay, way to practice self-care. And it might have been like, I'll try to give you a break for a week. But she couldn't control the flow. And then the other thing, when I changed jobs within that organization, the last job, I had three different jobs. The last job was kind of a dream job in palliative care for me that I was the home-based dementia specialist in Denver. And it really was like a dream job. And I had a social work manager who really understood my work and all of these things. But at the time, the organization was going through financial hardships and they had hired somebody from the outside to eliminate positions and everybody was running scared. And I knew the writing was on the wall and I was told that my job was going to change, that I was doing home visits. So that's not efficient from the systemic standpoint, but it was my job description. And I worked with people with dementia and their care partners. So they wanted me to cram more people. It was going to happen. I was going to have to see more people, have more phone calls, all of that. And I jumped ship because I realized this dream job of mine was going to turn into a nightmare because you can't rush people with dementia in a conversation or their family members. You have to check out stuff. It's a whole different skill set that is not efficient. Efficient according to systemic definitions, yes. <laughs> let's be clear. Yeah. Yeah. And I was already feeling this moral injury in advance, knowing mm-hmm. it was coming. Yeah. And as much as I love the job, I knew I couldn't stay or I'd hate it. And they never replaced me or anybody else who left. The other part of that was because it was a system, I either had just one phone call, one home visit. And if you know anything about dementia, one home visit does not do it (laughs) for the complication of that illness. And so that was hard too, because these people would save my phone number, some of my team's phone number, and just keep calling or emailing or pleading for help. And there wasn't any to give really very concrete help in that system. And that caused me moral distress. This family's drowning. They need more help. So when I decided to go out on my own and start my own business as a dementia coach and educator, that's why. Because now, guess what? Nobody is telling me how many sessions I can have or how often I can talk to this person or whatever. There's not those same constraints. I'm the one who kind of monitors that based on the acuity of the people I'm working with. But it's this freedom with it that I did not experience in the system my job anymore doesn't feel like work. It feels like breathing. Even though it's intense and difficult because of what I do, it's very invigorating for me. And I feel like I'm on purpose and I feel grateful every second to get to do what I'm doing. And that is a completely different feel from how I felt when my hands were tied so much in a system. Oh my gosh, so much about what you just said. I love this idea of it feels like breathing. Many of us who made the decision to leave. I also want to say, have the privilege to be able to leave because I know that not everyone 
can leave their jobs. And that's something I definitely want to chat about in a minute too, is what we do when we're not in a position to leave. But I do think this description of it feels like breathing. I feel grateful. I feel like I'm doing things on purpose. That definitely resonates. And you know, I think the other thing that's really challenging about what you said and what Melissa said is that in these organizations, they serve a purpose, obviously. That's why we were drawn to them. That's why they're out there doing the work that they do. But there's a disconnect between the mission of serving all these different types of people and groups and things like that, and then what we're requiring of the people doing the work. There's like that disconnect piece. And I think this was the big turning point for me as well, was when I realized my organization doesn't understand the value of connection in the workplace, connection and belonging in the workplace. Because as you all know, we need that. And when we expect people to just keep their heads down, work all day, and I'm not talking about you're in the hallway, you say hello to each other or whatever, but to actually get to know your colleagues, because we spend a lot of time with them, or we're spending a lot of time at work. And so if you don't have that feeling of connection and belonging at work, it weighs on you. And it is damaging to our overall health and well-being. Like it starts with our mental health, which then impacts every other part of our health. That's definitely one of the bigger challenges. And it's hard when you are like a mid-level manager and you're stuck between like those upper levels where they're just like, we have this bottom line. And that's the reality. Like I've talked about this before that we go into our workplaces and are expected to work because that's what you do at work. Having said that, this idea that we can be like these robotic beings that finish a certain number of cases or talk to a certain number of people or whatever, without factoring in the messiness of humanity, especially in these lines of work, it's not realistic. And it's actually what's causing so much of the damage to people who are doing the work. We all come from Gen X or above. (laughs) We were still part of that group where we were willing to like keep pushing through, keep pushing through. But we see like a lot of these new generations coming up that are like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not interested in doing that. My health and well-being is not worth it. Whereas there used to be this attitude of, you know what, you're replaceable. We'll just find something, you know, there's 100 people in line to do your job. And that pipeline's not there anymore. That bench is not so deep anymore. <laughs> and these jobs are necessary. We need people to do this work. I don't know why or how to help organizations that are still so resistant to the idea of building in, Melissa, as you were saying, you know, like some of this time to self-reflect, some of this idea of helping individuals get to know themselves as well as possible so they can actually be in that space together to create that sense of psychological safety and trust with their team so that when things like COVID pop up and now we have to work from our homes and we have socially isolated, we're still full connected to each other and we're still going to support each other so that we can keep doing this work. So I'm just curious. I know I've just said a lot of stuff (laughs) What's coming up for each of you around that kind of idea? For me, one of the things that you talked about in your book and that I've experienced through my 30 years in the 
or 35 years, however long I've been in this field, is that idea that the best time that I ever have when I'm at work is when I can be present in that moment. It takes three deep breaths before I walk into a patient's room and I'm just there with them, right? And that's why we do what we do. That is the crux of why we are here. And to really just listen to their story and be present without judgment, without trying to fix. And even if I'm having a really bad day, right? I start the day, you know, I'm orange on that continuum. (laughs) That was last week. I was like, I'm an orange. Then after I've spent 45 minutes really, really connecting with another human being, it's back to that connection piece and maybe holding on to their burden for a little while. It fills me up too. By the time I'm done talking to that patient, I can be an avocado or a green. And what happens in that room is I take three deep breaths, I walk in and I'm completely present in the moment. It's almost a mindfulness practice when I'm doing my therapeutic interventions. And listen without judgment, without trying to fix, without trying to make it about me, right? Let it be about this person and just hold their distress and their sadness and their grief and their loss and hold it with them and be able to witness, to be the witness. And that's why we do what we do. Having that human connection and helping people alleviate their suffering and their struggles, that actually is why I stay in the field. And we talk about compassion fatigue, well, there's compassion satisfaction. And that's the flip side of that. And that type of getting your cup filled in that kind of a situation where you're not feeling like you get the fix and you can just spend time and be really present with somebody, that is something that can really help you remember why this is so important in the first place. Yeah. And I loved what you just said about holding their pain with them, not for them. Because when we go to this idea of empathy, and we know that empathy, it makes the person on the other end feel good, but it also helps us, like you said, refill our cups. So it isn't about taking on other people's pain and challenges and trauma, but bearing witness and just being there with them in that space. And what about you, Kay? Well, I think that holding sacred space that Melissa is describing is super important. And I've been doing a lot of guest speaking recently to social work classes and to end-of-life doulas and different groups like that. And one of the things I've talked about is I think is unique in these kind of jobs that we all do is learning those kind of skills. I had been in counseling roles forever. I was a psychology major in in college had my social work degree, and I'd worked for probably 20 years or something before I went to hospice, but I'd never had a single class on death and dying. Mm. Wow. It was really a steep learning curve because learning to be with instead of do for in the same way and to not try to fix everything. And I mean, I knew listening skills were important and I thought I had good listening skills before I got to hospice and I realized, wow, I have so much to learn. (laughs) (laughs) about that. And so I'm always telling people because we don't have enough people going into these industries like you were just saying, Dimple. And I'm trying to say to these students that are trying to decide what track they're going to go on in social work school, geriatrics is a good track. There's so much to learn. There's so much wisdom from our elders and all of these kinds of things. It's not the stereotype that these people don't matter anymore because they're old and all that kind of stuff in this culture that values young and not old and those kinds of things. And trying to say these are the benefits that can fill you up professionally yeah. if you are willing to consider some of these things. And 
when Melissa mentioned the compassion satisfaction, she's the one who taught me that term. I didn't know it until the spring. I know. (laughs) Melissa's my go-to for everything that I need to learn. (laughs) Same. (laughs) But I think that I realized a lot since learning that term, like, that's what fills me up every day is when I end a phone call with a family member in Cape Cod or whatever, who's caregiving for their spouse with Alzheimer's. And we get to the end of the call and I'm saying, what are your takeaways for today? Or what stood out from you from our coaching call today? And they're like, I feel so much more normal now. I feel so validated now. I feel so understood. And I'm just like, oh, pay dirt, right? There's no amount of money that makes me feel as good as those kind of comments and being on purpose. And because I've learned all these things over decades of how to be with. And so I'm always saying that when I'm talking to people in social work or palliative care and hospices that no one can take these away from you. They're hard-earned skills and things, but something really wonderful comes with it that you're not going to get in a lot of other industries, in my opinion. And they apply to every part of your life. Yeah, yeah. And make you a better person. And that's as good as it gets in my book. So true, so true. All right, I can't believe where the time has gone, but (laughs) as we kind of close out, I want to ask you each one final question, which is in the container of this brave space that we've created together today, what does service without self-sacrifice mean to you? I think everything's a balance, right? And there are some days that are harder than others. It's like if you're finding that you have more good days than days that you feel like are hard, that's a good balance. If you're feeling like more days, you're coming home, like Kay was saying, and don't want to return to work and that kind of thing, then you need to kind of reevaluate. We could work 24 hours a day and never touch the need. Mm. We have job security in this humanitarian field. People are leaving in droves because it's just so hard, right? And we need to say to ourselves, this is enough for today. All right. Kay, go ahead and jump in. There's always going to be some self-sacrifice in anything. And I agree with what Melissa said about balance. And I think it comes back to the really hard lessons about self-awareness and compassion fatigue and burnout. And I don't personally think you learn those lessons unless you've done it, unless you've been there, done it. I mean, what she's teaching in the graduate program about self-awareness, because when I was getting my social work degree, my focus was about working as a therapist. So it was a ton of counseling classes. And one of the things we did in those programs was examining under a microscope our own family of origin issues. Yeah, yeah. Even when you do all of that and you have a high degree of self-awareness, still sometimes balance can tip. And suddenly you realize that you're given everything of yourself away and you're only on fumes. I've done that a thousand times in jobs. Until you finally get to the point when you say, if I make that exception for you, to come in on a Saturday or stay an extra hour late or whatever it is, then I'm not taking care of me. And if I don't take care of me, I have nothing left to give to my family, to myself, or to my community. But I think you can try to learn those lessons in advance, like a program where Melissa teaches. But sometimes I think viscerally, we have to go through it. Yeah. And once we've gone through it, hopefully less times than I did (laughs) to get it, then you can start learning to set those boundaries and practice that self-care differently. But if someone had educated me upstream that this stuff is going to happen to me or could happen to me, that would have been helpful. Exactly. And no one was coaching me and no one was saying, hey, good job for not 
going under the bus this week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's important to both and to go through it experientially and also to be educated and supported by the leadership or the people around you. Yeah, I love that. I just want to thank you both for taking the time to be here today and for the extraordinary work that you're both doing in the world. And I'm really grateful to call you both friends and colleagues. For everyone listening, be sure to pick up a copy of Kay's book, Bedside Witness, Stories of Hope, Healing, and Humanity. We'll put a link where you can buy it as well as where you can connect with both Kay and Melissa in the show notes. And as always, to all those who are listening, remember that at the heart of the word humanitarian is human, and we can choose to serve others without sacrificing our own health, well-being, and humanity in the process. So until next time, be well, and thank you so much for your service. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Service Without Sacrifice. If we want to put the human back into humanitarian work, we have to get this message in front of as many people as possible. And this, my friends, depends a lot on word of mouth. So if you enjoy these conversations and find them to be valuable, please like, subscribe, and review Service Without Sacrifice on your favorite podcasting platform. And share it with others who might benefit. And producing this show is a labor of love. Your support will help me to continue creating new content and sharing stories of hope, healing, and human-centered leadership for years to come. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on Substack, where I'm working to build a community with my newsletter and content hub, Dear Humanitarian. You can find out more about my writing, the book, our online story healing community called The Hummingbird Circle, as well as how to work with me over at rootsintheclouds.com. And I'd like to take a moment here to acknowledge how grateful I am to live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Dogue and Piscataway tribes. And I'd also like to take a moment to thank the team over at One Stone Creative for editing and producing this series. And finally, I'd like to thank you so much for your support. And most of all, thank you for your service.